Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, the author of the forthcoming novel Brotherless Night. So, Sugi, uh, we've had Native American writers on the show before. Back in 2019, Brandon Hobson and Rihanna Yazi were guests right after the Indigenous Peoples March. Yeah, that's right. And in one of our earlier episodes, one of our first episodes of the year, actually, I think, Therese Melo, who's from Seabird Island Band, uh, was on an episode along with Paul Lisicki to talk about the long-term mental health effects of the pandemic. I can't believe it's almost a year ago. I'm sorry to say those long-term mental health effects for many people still going on, of course. Um, but it has been great to have all of these Native and Indigenous writers on the show, I think very important. Uh, and I think that Rihanna Yazi is actually still the only playwright to have ever been a guest. She's actually based here in the Twin Cities where there is a really strong Native presence. Yeah, and today we're going to have another urban Native writer novelist, Erica T. Worth, joining us to talk about her new book, White Horse, and how it connects to a story that, in, in my opinion, in our opinion, hasn't been in the news enough, missing and murdered Indigenous women. So one pro- major problem seems to be that the numbers are incredibly hard to collect for a variety of reasons, some of which we'll talk about later but you did some I, research and collected what we have. That's true. And so um, just a few stats. According to the Crime Report, which comes out of the John Jay College of Criminal Justice, in 2021, the FBI reported 5,203 missing Indigenous girls and women. Um, and that means a it's, a, lot it's a lot of people. people. And that means that Indigenous women vanish at a rate more than 2.5 times their share of the U.S. population. They're twice as likely as white women to be victims of rape. Uh, 70% of American Indians live in urban areas, um, and so this is also a problem in cities. And a 2018 Urban Indian Health Institute report, which we'll link to in our show notes, and focuses specifically on cities to try to that this report was trying to get at that information gap. And that report named my own state, Minnesota, as one of the states with the most cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. According to the CDC, murder is the third leading cause of death for Indigenous or Native women, and the perpetrators are often non-Native people. So obviously this sounds horrendous and disproportionate. So today we're going to talk about um, why this happens, why it doesn't make the news more, and also just how can we write and what should we read about it? Well, today we have the novelist Erica T. Worth joining us to discuss exactly that, along with her novel, White Horse, which came out last month from Flatiron and has already gotten tremendous amount of praise. Um, White Horse is a literary horror novelist, is a New York Times editor's pick, a Good Morning America buzz pick, and an Indie Next 
Target Book of the Month and a Book of the Month pick. She is both a Kenyan and Sewanee fellow and has published in the Kenyan Review, BuzzFeed, and the Writer's Chronicle. She's a narrative artist for the Meow Wolf Denver installation and an urban, uh, she's a, she is an urban native of Apache, Chickasaw, and Cherokee descent. She lives in Denver with her partner, Stepkids, and two incredibly fluffy dogs. Erica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Well, um, we are very excited about your book. Uh, I will also say we're a, pro, we're a pro-dog podcast. Always glad to see that in a bio. Your novel features a 35-year-old urban native, Carrie, who's contending with the long-ago mysterious disappearance of her mother. And the book mentions the phrase missing and murdered indigenous women, um, MMIW, for our listeners. And we were talking a little bit earlier before you joined us about how bad a lot of the data is, not just bad um, in that there's a lot of missing people, but just really bad records, which makes it hard to address the problem. So, for example, in 2016, the FBI's National Crime Information Center reported 5,712 missing American Indian and Alaska Native women and girls. But the DOJ's missing persons database recorded 116, just like a gap of 5,600 people, which is appalling. And I'm just curious to hear you talk a little bit about how a kind of complex history and jurisdiction related to American Indians in this country, it kind of affects the tracking of this issue. Yeah, I think in some ways, I'm also hoping just the novel is a a fun horror novel that has its jump scares and is joyful and fun to read. And there are lots of really funny parts in there, too. Um, And I think the central, you know, issue there is more like, to use a a bigger phrase, intergenerational uh, trauma. Um, But yes, it does try to peripherally um, address that issue because I think there's very little data on American Indians um, who are women who are urban because in the United States there's a real resistance to seeing urban Indians as Indian at all. In Canada, there is a tracking system. There has been for decades for urban Indians. It's you know it's racist, it's gross, but um, for generations upon generations. Even if people weren't on the reserve, it would say things like Métis or breed. And there is a secondary status, if you will, in Canada. There's First Nations and then there's people of Métis who are Métis. And they also, in 1987, garnered a secondary federal status. We have nothing like that down here. The only equivalent we have is state-recognized tribes. um, And then they try to move to federally recognized. But... um, in America, I think because of anti-black sentiment, there, you know, census takers were told until even the 1960s that even if a person um, looked full-blooded, I don't like that phrase, but if they looked completely native, if they didn't speak any English whatsoever to mark them down as black or white. And there were very, very rare circumstances in which that wasn't the case. And so I think that that's affected the data to this day. In addition to the fact that there are a lot of black natives, there are a lot of Latinx natives, of which I'm technically both, and so is the main character, Carrie, um, and people just don't see them as American Indians at all. And that's another problematic aspect, I think, in terms of getting the numbers right in the United States for, for MMIW. Yeah, that question of classification also comes up in the book. There's a, a moment when your main character, Carrie, is talking to a retired police detective, Frederico, who's himself Mexican. Um, and he says, um, you know, he talks about Mexican women, who, women who are murdered in factories. No one thinks of them as being Indian because they speak Spanish, right? Um, and so 
you know, in the we looked up some statistics uh, in the Urban Indian Health Institute report from 2018. A Santa Fe police rep says many Native Americans adopted Hispanic names during colonial times. Our crime system systems are not flexible enough to pick out Native Americans from others in the system. So how does that racial misclassification make it hard to track missing women? I'm so sorry. Now my dogs are doing. I should. We love your dogs. Go right ahead. We'll keep them in. <laughs> All right, girls. Okay, there you go. There you go. There you go. Go on. Now, oh, God. Yeah, I, I, uh, you know, there are a lot of, um, you know, I think every single country, Canada, um, United States, and Mexico, all have different ways in which colonization and genocide occurred. And I think that in Mexico, there's an expression I always forget in Spanish, and it's called something like uplifting the race. And it means that okay, we're not going to kill you off in the same proportions, but we're going to assimilate you and make you feel that, you know, marrying up or marrying a white person is better and that ultimately we can kind of Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ugh, I don't like this on so many levels. Um, breed you out, you know, culturally and then racially if you want. The problem really becomes that the issue of who you are in two different countries are so different. So in the United States, a lot of Native people are like, race isn't real, um, blood quantum is gross, and um, it's much, much better to look at issues like citizenship. Like, do you belong to a federally recognized nation? And that's, I like that idea. I think in some ways it takes out all the bad stuff, but it doesn't change the fact that if you're like me and you're not a member of a federally recognized tribe, I have, rec- I have you know, and so has my family, um, kept up our connection to urban Indian culture, which is something that arose um, in different places in the United States um, as colonization occurred, Chicago, Minneapolis, Winnipeg. And so, you know, I'm still connected to these urban Indian cultures that that are authentic and real. I think in Mexico, the problem became, except for very isolated communities, right? Um, everybody is mestizo to some degree or another, um, but they were encouraged not to speak their language and not, and that happened here too, um, and not to think of themselves as Native Americans. So a lot of people who, are, you know, who are Mexican or of Mexican descent are like, Mexican is not a race. Mexican is a nation. It is a nationality. It's not an ethnicity. And so they're like, we identify now as Native American. But of course, then they have to figure out what that means when they literally, what tribe they are, what or tribes has been taken from them. So this is just problematic in every single way. Right. And one of the things that your book does so beautifully, like, so in reading these reports, also one of the things that emerges is that, you know, I think like one of the problems with the way that we depict and cover stories related to Native Americans, of course, has to do with how like the history of imagining them in rural, imagine your community as both in the past and in a rural space. And so one of the great things about the novel is the way that it puts um, your character, Carrie, who is urban and is Native, kind of front and center. And is she's very like 
alive and of the moment and as you mentioned very also very funny um despite the fact that like yeah the, this kind of quest at the heart of the book is is a you know it starts with her thinking about her missing mom um and she has all this she and her family have this history in urban spaces including Carrie's mother was involved with AIM, the American Indian Movement, which started in Minneapolis, actually, right? In, um, and, and Carrie's mom was involved in Denver. Um, and I wonder if for listeners who aren't familiar with AIM, if you could talk a little bit about what that was. Yeah, I think that, you know, in my life, it's always been in the periphery, but it's in the periphery of every American Indian's life, I think. So, and it's, you know, biggest times were probably the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And in Denver, the biggest figures, like them or not, and I would understand why, um, are Russell Means and Ward Churchill. And Ward Churchill's of native descent, and so people like to argue about whether he's really native or not, which isn't interesting to me. What is more relevant is that Russell Means did not have the most amazing history when it came to women. And that is kind of what's at the heart of the novel. Because without giving any spoilers, um, <laughs> we're definitely we not going to give is... any <laughs> you're welcome to do whatever you want since I'm it's actually your book. the one who's yeah well I'm the one who like my my first editor my first book was like don't do that Erica um so I'm really I'm really good at doing it so I won't but um in any case without giving any spoilers um to me I think and this exactly speaks of the missing and murdered indigenous women's movement what a lot of natives and i'm an academic i have a phd um but a lot of <laughs> natives like to do and especially academics is they like to get on twitter and they like to talk about missing and murdered indigenous women and they like to talk about the fact that the laws on different reservations um allow and this is absolutely true um and obama tried to counter it right and it's still it's still constantly being in a state of you know fight um but is, you know, the laws sort of allow non-natives to go on the reservation and, you know, rape or assault Native women. And it's ultimately because those non-Natives do it, it goes up, it's kicked up to the, and they and they basically don't want um, white people to be judged by tribal courts. It's kicked up to the federals, the feds, the federal courts. And because they don't care, they just dismiss it. So people talk about how it's it's permissive to do this kind of thing. And that is problematic and it's terrible and it's wrong. But then they'll go and say, oh, this is the primary um, way in which native women and native femmes um, and native queer folks are sexually assaulted. And that is not true. Um, on reserves, on reservations, in urban areas, native women are assaulted inside their own relationships and by their own family members and communities. And I feel like glossing over that is part of, you know, how we try to have this public face of sort of rage and anger that's kind of commodifiable. And it, it disturbs me because there are actual people being harmed behind that thing. So at one point in the novel, I mean, it's, it's I think it's important to I, I liked the historical resonance in the book that the book is set in the present. And it's very present. And we're going to talk about that present in just a minute. But because, of course, Carrie is looking for we're trying to find out what happened to her mother. You also talk a lot about the politics of her mother's time period, you know, um, and which is my also my time period. <laughs> um, so at one point in the novel, um, Carrie's relative, Auntie Squeaker, says, you're too young to remember, but when Reagan was elected, he did all kinds of shit to Indians, took land, reduced monies, going to reservations. Denver's been a hub for Indians forever. But in 81, this place was flooded with Indians from every res, and they were hopping mad, joined forces with us urban Indians. I live 
near Denver. I live in Kansas City, so I've spent a lot of time there. I wonder if you could talk about more about the Reagan era policies toward Native Americans and the uh, and the political origins of this story. Sure, and and keep in mind, you know, my my doctorate was in creative writing and literature. <laughs> so if I misspeak or I'm not an expert in these things, um, that is why. My my partner David Heskowombly Wyden, he is he does have a doctorate and he is a professor of political science. So looking at his winter counts is probably a better space than mine. But the reason why I address it is because, again, Native people, whether they want to be educated on it or not, um, it, these things impact them. And I think that from what I understand, um, Reagan, alongside doing a lot of nasty things, he, he did reduce reservation territories. He did reduce monies for Native people. He was a big centralizing factor in... Um, you know, in these in these issues that I that you just read about. That I, I didn't know that. That was so that was a new piece of information for me. Ah, interesting. OK, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. Your brain needs support and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So you were mentioning earlier your protagonist, Carrie is, is mixed race um, and her father, Jim, is white and her mother, Cecilia, is native. And and early in the novel, she's given a powerful bracelet that belonged to her mother. And this is one of the kind of opening. This is the opening of the book. And I wonder if you would if you would read it for us. Sure. And I would say that most natives, even if one of their parents was completely white, would probably not identify as mixed. But that depends on the person. Sometimes someone will say, yes, I am mixed because of XYZ reason, but some natives, especially if they're enrolled with a federally recognized tribe, will say, I am a citizen of a citizen of this nation, and that is what matters. Just just to be clear, you know. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, sure, I'll I'll read the opening passage. There was something strange, mysterious even, about the white horse tonight. Normally it was merely an Indian bar, my Indian bar. But there was a milky, dreamy quality to the red lights swinging over the pool tables, like the wind from the open doors was bringing them something new, something I'd pushed away for as long as I could remember. Debbie, do we have to talk about her again? I took another swig of my beer and slammed it back down, eyeing my cousin as I did. She would never let this subject go, no matter how much I rebuffed her. I sighed, taking in the dank, wet wood smell of the bar, the harsh laughter of the bikers in the booth behind me. The thing is, I found, I interrupted her with a brush of my hand. I hoped Nick, the bartender, would come by and ask if I needed a refill, but all I could see was the mirror in front of me, the words Miller High Life emblazoned in gold cursive on the front. Right next to it, a sign read, first fight, last drink, permanent 86. Besides us, the bartender and the bikers, the white horse was empty. It was always empty, but I loved it. I loved the long wooden bar. The cats wandering in and out. The mangy orange one was my favorite. She liked to sit on top of the bar and let me pet her while she closed her cloudy eyes and purred. Debbie shifted her weight on the stool, the plastic crackling as she did, the bar stirring around me like a bad dream. All I'm saying is you don't know your mom's story. Yeah, okay, Debbie, that's great, I said. I signaled Nick when he came out of the bathroom. 
two more, I said, hoping he'd remember. A couple of Diné came through the doors, quiet the way they were, and made their way to a pool table in the back. One of them saw me, and he came over to order a beer, and he gave me the friendly nod, his black hair glistening red in the faint bar light. I nodded back, and that strange feeling I'd had earlier flooded back into me. The thing is, Debbie said, you know how we check in on your dad? I hung my head. Yeah, so? I went over there the other day to do that and some cleaning because I know the nurse is great and everything, but I like to see how he is, and I just come home from work and was dropping the kids off. Jesus, Debbie, if you're not going to let it go, spit it out. Okay, okay, she said, starting again. So mom had been pushing me to clear some of the boxes in the attic, and like we were going to haul them out and throw them in the dumpster, but mom seemed to want to look through them, and mainly they were full of old toys and papers and rusting appliances, but then we found something. What, I whispered, and that dream equality snapped back. Something of your mom's. I was silent. My mother, the woman who had abandoned me when I was only two days old, the woman who my father had been so devastated over he began to take long drives, a bottle of Jack in between his legs, the woman who had made it so that I had to care for my dad like a baby instead of the other way around after he'd gotten into an accident that had left his body but taken his mind, Cecilia. Thank you so much for reading that passage. Um, I really love the the folklore in the novel and, and the, the novel's connections too. It's a horror novel. Um, and the the bracelet that is mentioned is covered in patterns from native folklore and myth. And I wonder if you could just talk about that object, the, the bracelet, and what led you to put it in the novel. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, basically, I don't know if there's going to be a visual component, but it's based off of this bracelet, this copper bracelet that was passed along in my family, and I literally don't know from how long ago. And so it's a copper bracelet, which was much more common. A lot of natives have them. Um, you know, growing up, I don't know if it's just an urban Indian thing or not, but a lot of natives I knew had some form of copper bracelet. And this particular one just features Plains Indian stuff because that was the most popular thing. And, um, you know, that mythology that America developed around Plains Indians is is kind of fascinating because there was like a way in which it was so compelling for them, the story they created um, around what was there is, you know, all natives kind of had to fit into that, that thing. And so, um, like I said, that stuff was just really, really popular. But what I decided to do was make it more fun in the novel. And I decided to put the Lofa in there, who is a, you know, sort of an evil Chickasaw Bigfoot. Um, and he's just a wonderfully creepy horror, you know, creature and he's certainly based off of a real Chickasaw story. Um, I put in some Apache st um, like symbols in there. Um, basically the four directions are kind of the sacred number for a lot of native people. And the all the things that you see on the bracelet are, are sacred for most Apache people. And it sort of weaves into the, to the story um, in different ways throughout. I'm really trying hard not to do spoilers. <laughs> I, was, I was just admiring you threading <laughs> well, that needle. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, it was hard for me. We just did an episode with um, the novelist Buki Papillon, who's a Nigerian-American writer who uses a ton of African folklore and myth in her novel. And we we're talking about how it also appears in uh, Wakanda Forever, that same sort of mythology. And, the, you know, it, obviously there was no communication between these two cultures when these folklore and myth were being developed. But there are it's so striking how similar there are figures, you know, like trickster figures. There's, you know, characters like the Lofa that appear in the Yoruba people, you know, uh, myths that we were talking about. I wondered if you ever have, this is, you know, 
Native American myth and folklore is like a global treasure. People know about it all over the world now, right? But I wonder if you ever think about like why it is that it resonates with other cultures that it wouldn't originally have had connections to. I think you know? every um, culture, European, you know, various different kinds of African, um, Asian, probably have monsters, right? We all have monsters. Yeah. And they're probably very literal fears. Like we're genuinely afraid of big cats, um, who are like, like our primary murderers when we were first evolving. Right? right. And from what I understand, this is really disturbing. It's part of why homo sapiens sapiens survived, um, because we were the most horrifically brutal. And so we were the only ones able to kill, like kill off or combat these, these big cats. And so we also decided to kill off the other kinds of humans, which is just really horrible. And it's something I think about a lot. But Unbelievable, I'm yeah, so unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think that the, what's interesting is I was on a, a Talking Scared podcast, which is very much a horror book podcast. And we were talking about Bigfoot because people don't know that Bigfoot is an indigenous monster. He is a uniquely indigenous monster. There might be other cultures permutations, but Bigfoot specifically in all of his either evil to Harry and the Henderson's glory, like however, you know, people want to represent him, people, he's become so popular in certainly the American um, imagination that people have forgotten his origins. And what I like about um, the Lofa or the Shampe, the Choctaw have a similar creature um, called the Shampe, which it's actually weird because they're very neighboring tribes. They used to be one and their languages are so similar. So it really surprises me that their word for the same thing is so different. So I would love to know why, but Bigfoot is like, it is in countless indigenous stories. And he's so, I don't know why he's so compelling. Maybe because it's this idea of another kind of human that exists. One of the ones the we killed off a long time ago. Yeah, maybe that's it. I was thinking about that. You know, a lot of natives talk about the little people and people are like, how adorable. But I'm like, I don't know. There were all these stories that the Cherokee had about the little people and the little bears. And anthropologists thought it was so funny. But there were skeletons they found of like little bears that had died off like a thousand years before Europeans started to colonize here. And so I always think like on a lot of reservations, there's always that one family line of people who people are kind of creeped out by <laughs> like I wonder if they're not just you know I don't know little people so it's funny I as a kid was like pretty obsessed with Bigfoot did you know like I was in the fifth grade and they're like you have you get to do an independent research project on whatever you want and I was like Bigfoot is it my you know teachers and my parents were like really and so I spent all this time reading about Bigfoot and was so fascinated by it and your character is um, Carrie is actually originally really resistant to some of this, some of these stories, some of this mythology. And she says, you know, I wasn't religious, superstitious. I liked life concrete and tangible. And I wonder why. It takes place in 2016 and the main character is um, a Gen Xer. And um, it's, it's a generalization, but I think a lot of Gen X people were, are, tend to be a little more cynical and a little more, a little less religious and um, Carrie is certainly that. Um, and also, you know, it's just, she's a pragmatic personality. If you, if you go to Idaho Springs, Colorado, you'll meet a ton of Carries and, you know, of different ethnic backgrounds. And I think, you know, life is a little bit, you know, if you come from a small rugged mountain town, you have to be kind of pragmatic to survive. 
And, you know, it's also, it's not, you know, yes, she doesn't want to think about her mom. Yes, she doesn't want to think about a lot of these things. But on some level, they're just so big. And she has, you know, she's a regular person who likes to read and watch horror and likes to go to her Megadeth concerts. And she's smart. Um, she knows a lot of Denver history. But she's not really invested in, you know, higher education or or history. So these things are kind of like, eh, you know, what, why should I bother with these things that are not fun and not cool as far as she's concerned? I mean, could you talk a little bit? I did like the Megadeth parts of the uh, of the uh, uh, of the novel. Could you talk? I mean, are you a fan? How did that get into the book? What was your uh, what was your reason? I mean, and she really resonates to the music, and so I wonder if you could just talk about how that and her interest in horror also. Uh, in the yeah, book. yeah. Thank you for asking that. I I um, essentially um, where I grew up um, when I grew up right in Idaho Springs. I grew up right outside of, and I went to school there. Horror books, people are always like, oh, Indians don't read or poor people don't read. And that's just so not true. Everyone I knew read Stephen King and I read it. I loved Stephen King and everyone I knew loved heavy metal. And I was kind of geeky and nerdy. And so I was like an indie rock or, you know, later hip hop person. But heavy metal was omnipresent. And over time, I started to understand the appeal of it and on different reservations, like heavy metal is a big deal, too. And. I think it's because if you grow up in a circumstance, it's, you know, again, like kind of brutal and you have to really work to survive in a variety of ways. Heavy metal has a very intense, brutal edge to it. It's lyrics, it's um, it's sound, and you can see why it appeals. And I have come to like it much more over time. And I also have come to understand that precisely what is kind of great about indie and hip hop is the opposite of why people don't, it's why people don't like it in places like Idaho Springs or didn't tend to, because it's kind of DYI. And I love that about it. And it doesn't mean that there aren't virtuosos, of course, in indie rock and hip hop, but you have to be a genius. And I'm not talking about the heavy, the hair metal bands to, to um, play guitar the way those guys play guitar. You have to literally Now you're talking my language because yeah. I was a guitar player. And I feel See? like it's sad that the guitar is not as popular as it used to be. I know. I love I the guitar. Everybody I knew, everybody I knew knew how to play guitar. And Dave Mustaine, he is a quirky, weird guy. And I I like him and I always did. And he, um, he writes articles for music magazines. The guy actually on his technique because it's so unique. And so I think that's what I get. Like, you know, it takes a near miracle to get you out of a brutal circumstance. And so I can see why people idolized that so much, you know, back home. Erica, do you play the guitar? No, my boyfriend does, although he'll say he doesn't because he kind of had to put it away. My dad sort of half played guitar and I still have his guitar. But I'd love to play the electric guitar, but can't have these nails when you do that. <laughs> um, if you have yeah. a favorite Dave Mustaine article, if you send it to me, we can put it in the show notes, which I'm sure our listeners would love to see. And I'm sure Winnie would probably read. Yes. Um, I do not play the guitar. Absolutely. But I'm also, yeah, I play other things and I'm curious to see what kind of writer Dave Mustaine is. Um, I... Who's the leader of Megadeth, by the way? For anyone yeah, I'm sure yeah, all yeah. of our listeners know this. I, this, make, this makes me want to... I don't think our <laughs> listeners all know this. This is why I'm saying it. You're like, no. <laughs> um, this makes me really want to change our theme music for just this one episode. Um, but... Um, and and also to go back and, and listen to metal myself because I feel like this is not it's not a, really a genre that I spent a lot of time with and you're, you're very persuasive and maybe I should kind of go back and revisit. 
it has a very toxic masculine quality and it can't, and the hair bands, of course, are like, ugh, you know, but Guns N' Roses, Megadeth, Metallica, there's one that's kind of an indigenous band called A Feather of Bone that I mentioned in the book. They're, they are pretty great, you know? Well, we will link to all of these in our show notes for our listeners. And I do want to go back to some of the conversation we were having a little bit about horror because you wrote for uh, LitHub's partner site, Crime Reads, um, about the mysterious death of your own grandmother and also your lifelong interest in horror and the paranormal and kind of their capacity to address, you were referring earlier to intergenerational trauma and just trauma generally and the capacity to provide catharsis. And I also think of catharsis in terms of writing, right? Like it's something sometimes that like as a writer, you kind of like, I don't know, sometimes in the back of my head, I'm like hoping for something for my character, like maybe she, maybe they find their way to something. And I kind of wonder as you began the book, if you were anticipating catharsis for your character and, and how, if, if you found it in writing. Yeah. You know, the whole thing with my grandmother, I did talk about it in crime reads is that, you know, the difference in narratives have kind of like not torn my family apart, but it's, it's a lot of why there's tension in there. I think it's the beginning. And I, again, I was told she suicided and then a cop was like, no, I don't think so. This is not, this looks doctored. It looks like somebody's covering something up. And so you know, some of my family is like super evangelical, um, the family that was super Native American church. And then my mom's sort of an agnostic and they were Catholic and they were traditional and they were all these things. So there's a lot going into that. I think in terms of catharsis, I do think it's important that, you know, the we see in terms of Native American literature that we come from a lot of different places. And I spent 20 years watching people try to boil us down to one one Native American writer and one narrative and who's the most authentic and let's just just you know um, create a narrative around the most authentic Indian and just push them again and again and again and it was a boring soul-sucking place to be so I think what's cathartic for for hopefully Native audiences and non-Native too is to read it and go oh this is completely different this is completely different and I think I'm not the only one there's Rebecca Roanhorse and um, Brandon Hobson, Kelly Joe Ford, um, you know, my indigenous brother from another mother, Stephen Graham Jones, right? There's just, and he's just a wonderful weirdo. I, I love that. Um, and there's, there's V Castro, who's the other indigenous horror writer. She's Mexican Indian and she's just knocking it out of the park. So I think though, that in some ways of what's cathartic is my attention to structure in the novel. I'm really interested in story and I'm really interested in structure and I think a lot of like I a lot of literary people don't talk enough about it. And so I like to set up the novel so that it has a structure that allows catharsis. Um, and I know that's probably a boring technical answer. That's probably why why you're seeing that in there. Well, I talk about structure all the time with my students. and They always get mad at me. So I appreciate it when guests uh, mention it as being important. We made Alexander Chi say it twice when we were interviewing him <laughs> just a little while ago. Um Erica, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and listeners, don't miss White Horse, which is out now. Cool. Thanks, you guys, so much. Thanks for all the work you put into this. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your beautiful book. It's a pleasure having you with us. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. 
We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!